You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to One Hour at a Time. It is March 3rd and we are, uh, I believe now, 19 days away from spring. And today we have with us um, Dr. Jerry Boriskin, who is the author of At Wit's End. Uh, Dr. Boriskin is a Ph.D. and um, substance abuse professional with more than 26 years of experience as a licensed clinical psychologist, certified addiction specialist. He's a consultant, a national lecturer, and a treatment program designer. He is the author of PTSD and Addiction, a Practical Guide for Clinicians and Counselors. He is a passionate advocate for integrated treatment. His vision anticipated the ongoing movement toward integrated treatment for co-occurring disorders, particularly those involving trauma. He has worked extensively with sexual abuse survivors and combat veterans. Dr. Boriskin is co-founder and clinical consultant for the Advanced Recovery Center in Delray Beach, Florida, a residential extended care facility for co-occurring psychological disorders and addiction. Welcome, Dr. Boriskin. Um, I hope it's a lot warmer where you are. I'm up in New Hampshire, so... You are a lot colder up there, I'm sure. It's um, beautiful down here. Good, good. Uh, I wondered if you could just begin by um, sharing with our audience how you got interested in treating addiction and um, trauma. Actually, that's a very interesting question and an easy answer. Um, I went through training in the classic paradigm of learning mental health issues and um, was really not at all exposed to addictive disorders. In fact, I remember being an intern. If, you know, you expressed interest in addiction, you would be questioned as to why would you want to work with them as if it was another member of the species. And I had been interested in addictive disorders because I noticed a number of um, combat veterans that I was working with had addiction issues. So as I began to understand more about post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a steep enough learning curve, I learned that I couldn't really help that population unless I understood addictive disorder. So I became actually an early educator of the addictions treatment programs, including Hazelden in Center City and then subsequently Hazelden Foundation nationally, into teaching um, addiction professionals about what post-traumatic stress disorder is. And then while I was doing that, I learned all about addictive disorders. So I was early on in having been forced to learn both languages in order to treat the population that um, I was uh, tasked with understanding and um, treating, which was uh, the returning Vietnam veterans um, in um, the late 1970s, early 1980s when post-traumatic stress disorder was first described. And what is the correlation between addiction and PTSD? Um, that one is a very interesting one. Um, if you have active post-traumatic stress disorder, in other words, if you have the symptoms that fit active PTSD, the correlation coefficient is about 0.8, which means there's a pretty close association. It means that if you have active PTSD symptoms, the probability is pretty darn high that you're going to have um, at least a substance abuse and probably a, perhaps a substance dependence disorder. That is because um, using substances helps in terms of cooling down some of the anxiety symptoms and um, the multiple intrusive symptoms associated 
trauma. So it just increases the probabilities. And then if you reverse the question and look at people in with addictive disorders and go into um, um, an AA meeting or an NA meeting, you will find about one-third, and in some cases one-half, of the people in those rooms will have qualified for a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. So that particular association is very high. What would be some symptoms of, I mean, PTSD for, we we have a lot of folks now that are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan Mm -hmm. and other places around the country, around the world that we're uh, sending troops to. And um, we have families that that are left home that are not being able to make ends meet. We have people who are losing their houses because of these mortgage problems. And so what are typical symptoms that, that people would exhibit? Well, you know, a lot of this depends upon which disorder comes first, which is important and not important at the same time because it's not just with post-traumatic stress disorder. You have multiple blends of um, many psychological issues along with addictive disorders, and some of them come before the addiction develops and others develop because of the addiction. And um, in order to understand the symptom presentation at any given point, sometimes sequence is important to know. So, for example, um, there are many people who develop post-traumatic stress disorder following a catastrophe or following a war experience or some out-of-the-ordinary difficulty with um, life circumstances, and they develop some of the classic symptoms that result in always being on edge, always being alert, and not being able to calm down and losing their normal focus. They feel many, many symptoms, depersonalization, um, constant intrusive thoughts, um, sleep disruption. They just can't turn off that alarm system that says, we're in danger. And then along with it, they will sometimes resort to using medications to calm down. Uh, with the Vietnam veteran community, a lot of a lot of people use marijuana to calm down, and that was in the early days considered a way of um, keeping the anger levels down, which is another symptom, especially with combat veterans, but not limited to combat veterans. Incest survivors and sexual abuse survivors also have a lot of anger problems. So any substance that gives you this illusion of I feel better, I feel calmer, does work in the short run, but then you start paying the price especially if your wiring is vulnerable to toward addiction. So mm-hmm. then you get into this whole dance of, you know, what causes an addiction? Is it genetic and biological, or is it just um, a result of circumstances? And that gets into an age-old debate, you know. In, in, the, in the old days, it used to be that the alcoholic would say to his wife, you drove me to drink, and that was clearly distortion, and it's clearly, you know, it was a convenient excuse sort of thing to mask drinking, and those of us familiar with the patterns of denial and addictive disorders know that that becomes an excuse um, that many addicts utilize. However, in some circumstances, there are life events that can drive you toward drinking as a way of self-medicating, and if you are vulnerable to an addiction, developing an addiction, then it becomes a lifestyle and it becomes the illness of addiction along with the uh, concurrent um, trauma-based disorder or anxiety disorder. And it can work just the other way around. There are a lot of addicts and alcoholics who 
have had totally benign backgrounds and have never been abused or neglected or hurt by families or life or never been to war, and they wind up getting raped while using, or they wind up having a bad trip on a hallucinogen, and they they wind up being violated by circumstances associated with uh, using behavior. And that can, in turn, create the combination of two disorders at once. And that's the tricky part of this, is when you have two of them operating at the same time, it makes it hard for everyone involved, and it makes it even hard for the professionals to understand this. So that's why I became really impassioned about trying to demystify this whole thing, because it's complicated, but it's really not that complicated. And once you understand how these disorders work in harmony, you have a better chance of staying sober, number one, if you're in recovery. And number two, you also you learn to um, deal with the symptoms associated with post-traumatic um, stress phenomena, as well as other disorders. And we're not just talking about PTSD, but obviously we're focusing on that because that's the one I'm, I'm most interested in. And especially um, PTSD is much more common in our, in our society than than we think. And, oh, yes. And there are a lot of people walking around with symptoms and don't really understand what it is they're experiencing. So um, I, I think that it, this is a very timely um, discussion. Sure. What is the most effective treatment for someone with PTSD and an addiction? Is it um, treatment that makes you relive the trauma? Is no. It, CBT, what, what is the most important? Yeah, yeah let, me, let me interrupt you right there because it's really a valuable question and extremely important and one I see errors being made all over the place in terms of what works and what doesn't work. Um, first of all, when you've got the blend, you know, if you have just simple PTSD, that's a different story. If you've got PTSD plus an addictive disorder, it makes it a little bit more compelling and you need to, to look at a larger picture. So for simple post-traumatic stress disorder, let's start with that. There are many techniques that are effective and helpful, but talking about it is really not sufficient. Uh, it's often a beginning. Most of the movies portray it. It's when you remember it and you relive it, and you have this great aha experience, and everything is fine, and the music plays, and everything is resolved. Life is not that simple. And in reality, some of those techniques will actually make some trauma survivors worse rather than better. So the gold standard for treating post-traumatic stress disorder, you mentioned one of them, is CBT, cognitive behavior therapy. That is the, the best general method that balances, you know, behavioral skills and, and skill mastery um, with, um, you know, dealing with the intrusive symptoms. And that's kind of an incomplete answer because it's, it's effective, but there needs to be more added to it. And there are additional techniques and styles and approaches, including EMDR, that are very effective um, in, in, in helping people with post-traumatic stress disorder. But very important thing to keep in mind, if you've got a co-occurring addictive disorder, you're not going to be able to treat it until you are sober. So sobriety first, addiction recovery is the first step then you can start working on what hurts, namely the, the trauma-related stuff. So there is a very important sequence involved that a lot of people forget, and it, it becomes a little bit of a myth. It's like, you know, if, if I relive the trauma and work it through and cry sufficiently, then everything will be better, including I will stop drinking. And any of us who work with addictive disorders know that doesn't work. But it's a great myth, and it's still, you know, it's still 
has some power for people who um, don't work in this in this uh, domain because the media or the movies have kind of trained us otherwise. And really, and early on in trauma, in learning to treat trauma, often this experiential kind of reliving it was considered the gold standard. There were groups, I remember working in a women's halfway house and women going to groups where they would sit around a group and talk over and over again about the event that traumatized them. Right. And it was usually sexual trauma. And yes. um, they would come back from these groups charged and, you know, and um, emotional and just, you know, really wired. And mm-hmm. um, we used to sit around thinking, like, this is good, but, you know, it's where we were told to send them. So I know. And, and the funny thing is because it was such a powerful cultural influence and most addiction counselors were trained in those days, in that model, which I could go back in history and show you where the distortions occurred, but it's basically a Freudian model that says you remember what was repressed and then everything is better and it will help you identify your feelings and you will become sober and sane and more rational and balanced. There was partial validity to those views, but it doesn't fit when you're dealing with post-traumatic issues or incest or sexual abuse. The heavy-duty stuff is where that theory totally falls apart. And I can cite many instances, and probably you can as well, of people who were really, really hurt by those sorts of um, intense intrusions into um, those sensitive issues. Right, right. Right. We certainly have come a long way with our understanding of PTSD and substance use disorders. And we'll be right back to talk with Dr. Boriskin and talk more about at Wits End, what you need to know when a loved one is diagnosed with an addiction and mental illness. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Jerry Boriskin, who is the co-founder and clinical consultant for the Advanced Recovery Center in very warm and pleasant Delray Beach, Florida. Um, the Advanced Recovery Center is a residential extended care facility for people who have co-occurring psychological disorders and substance use disorders. So um, welcome back, Dr. Boriskin. We were talking about PTSD before we went to the break and, and what was effective treatment. And um, I know there's more you wanted to say about that. Sure. Well, let me just kind of continue in terms of, of what works and what doesn't work. Um, very important thing for any listeners or family members who are dealing with loved ones with post-traumatic stress disorder and addiction, it is a, a steep climb in the sense that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. It is not something that is subject to a quick fix or a simple technique. It takes a lot of effort, A, to get somebody sober, and B, to keep them sober while working through the injuries that may have contributed to the addictions. So whereas most Americans want, you know, something like a pill to pop or a quick technique that makes it go away, um, it takes a lot more work. Now, the good news is there are many great techniques and with the right mindset and expectation um, and the right training, clinical professionals can help um, lead survivors on a journey that brings them back into real-world living and a more balanced living. Because what we've learned about post-traumatic stress disorder is that it affects every system, just like we've learned that about addictive disorders. It changes brain chemistry. It changes your biology and your ability to modulate moods. I mean, it would take me several hours to really go into the details of all of this, but, you know, it, it used to be believed in, you know, the turn of the century or even before that, that people who went through traumatic events um, actually had damage to their spinal systems that um, caused their symptoms. What we now know is that traumatic events actually rewire the brain and create changes that are long-lasting. That's the bad news. The good news is changes can be um, transcended by the proper therapeutic approaches, but those approaches are not as simple as having somebody cry and scream and remember it and relive it. In fact, talented clinicians now know and well-trained clinicians now know that um, you need to bring just enough intensity into the therapeutic process for it to be um, meaningful but not overload anybody. So that's actually what keeps a lot of people from seeking treatment. They're afraid of some of those movies and some of the stories from others who've gone through treatment. Someone's going to ask me a question that will make me fall apart or, or lose it and I'll never get it back together. Um, that's not the goal. Getting someone to unglue themselves and relive everything is not constructive, even though that was the model 20 years ago, 30 years ago, in many settings uh, where people were confronted and pushed to disclose vivid details of everything that happened to them. That is no longer the case in most enlightened settings and by most enlightened practitioners who, who know this, um, this literature and this specialty. Um, so there are very good techniques now 
that are woven together in a way that permits people to reclaim their lives and not hit these pseudo answers because some of you know the the things that work too quickly or guarantee results are just like infomercials they, it doesn't work that way and just like recovering from addiction post traumatic stress disorder requires a certain degree of learning to live with a chronic condition um, and learning to tolerate some of the differences that stay behind and moving forward in a way that gives you meaning and hope. And those of you who have this condition kind of would know what I'm talking about because it's really important to regain a sense of hopefulness and purpose and meaning, which the 12 Steps talks about, but this is also very important in dealing with um, trauma-related issues. Is there special help for the family members? Because when someone has PTSD, oftentimes it's like, well, if you only help me understand what you're going through or tell me what you've been through, I could understand it better. Or they're living with someone, somebody goes away and they come back and they're totally different from who they Uh, were before the trauma. And what what can family members do? Well, the more family members learn about what post-traumatic stress disorder is, the better it is for everyone involved. Unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot of easy-to-read resource material to make it understandable. And actually, it was one of the reasons for writing the book on co-occurring disorders was to make some of this huge information gap available to family members. So I wrote a chapter on post-traumatic stress disorder, which is the beginning of the answer to your question. Um, And actually, I'm working on another book that is devoted towards survivors and family members to understand much more deeply about post-traumatic stress disorder and make it user-friendly. Because it sounds paradoxical, but this stuff is really not as complicated or as mystical and as inaccessible as most people think, yet um, it defies easy, you know, simple, you know, descriptions. You really need to take a, a multidisciplinary look at it to get your hands around it, and family members can do that because even those without formal mental health educations or college degrees can understand what these changes are about and how it affects your interpersonal behaviors, your your temperament, your mood, your perceptions, and your belief systems, all of which get affected by trauma. And most importantly, you, know, you mentioned family members. One of the things that I find kind of distressing is um, I've been working on this for a long time, and I was listening to an NPR piece where they were interviewing a wife of an Iraqi um, veteran and uh, soldier, and her comment was, well, you know, there's something about him that's changed. It's like he's here, but he's not here. I heard the same comments 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So family members have been making the same observations for that period of time and for generations before that. So if you notice a loved one kind of being there but not there, that's part of this syndrome. They are kind of preoccupied and multitasking and kind of um, trying to solve something um, in the background while still trying to be available and normal. And it's a hard um, it's a hard thing to do. It's, in fact, it's an impossible thing to do. But it really does interrupt their, their intimacy capacity and their ability to be present when returning home or when dealing with a loved one, it really does impact your ability to be um, connected. And that's not your imagination as a family member and it's not the patient's malevolence or ill will. That's just part of what happens. 
to everyone who develops these symptoms. It really does form a barrier between you and your loved ones. Not intended, but that's part of what happens. Right. So so if a family member is seeing this, this type of um, preoccupation and maybe irritability and um, some hypervigilance, what resources are there? How how will they know what is a good program for PTSD? How will they know? Are there support groups for family members? Where where can they go for help? Okay, and it really depends upon at what stage this is caught and at what level the symptoms are problematic. If it is somebody with a military background, obviously there are resources, and there's been a lot of public media about the the lack of resource availability within military, but there are VA resources and, and money being pumped into that. So those are probably going to get stronger. They may or may not be immediately available, but there's a system there that you can take a loved one to. Um, and in terms of just general post-traumatic stress disorder without an addiction, the first stop would probably be a mental health professional, um, psychologist or psychiatrist who's a skilled diagnostician who can really say this is what's going on or not. However, if that loved one has been untreated, and a lot of this goes untreated for a long period of time, and it's almost like a, an incubation period, it's almost like a delayed onset, it's pretty rare that someone goes through a trauma and these symptoms aren't immediately available. It's pretty normal for them to kind of go underground for a while. If they go underground for a while and then also develop an addictive disorder, then the first stop is dealing with the addiction. So primary treatment for the addiction is step one, and then quickly diagnosing the post-traumatic stress disorder is step two. And then depending upon their level of severity, it'll be determined, you know, what level of care is needed, inpatient, outpatient, residential care, uh, or some combinations therein. So there isn't a simple generic answer, but, you know, really the, the question is, do you start off um, looking for mental health diagnosis or an addiction diagnosis? And if you've got both active, start with the addiction and then go to the mental health issues because too often the mistake is made of starting with mental health issues and then the addiction keeps going on and then it just totally undoes the um, mental health work you got to have both going on at the same time. And if it's just a mental health-related issue and it's PTSD, then it's a lot easier to work with. I mean, one disorder is easier than having two. <laughs> right. It's and really so in an ideal world, you would want a treatment center that provides integrated treatment. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. You've hit the nail on the head with that. And as simple as that sounds, that's hard to do and it's hard to find. And so families would really want to ask that question. Do you yes. provide both concurrently? Yes, exactly. And that's one of the reasons that we, you know, um, wrote at wit's end, and that's to educate family members in general, not just about PTSD, but about co-occurring disorders. You need an integrated treatment approach and an integrated vision of looking at both both worlds at the same time. And the better integration you have with those services, the more likely that person is to achieve a sustained recovery. So they need right. treatment for both both worlds. Right. One brain, both worlds. Exactly. Oh, well, yeah. I kind of, you know, and I, I, I think I use the analogy in the book with, with um, co-author Jeff Jay, we, we use the analogy of um, Apple software and uh, Windows software. 
they do the same thing, but they're kind of hard to understand, you know, if you're using one system or the other. They've kind of converged now, so it's a lot easier. But in the old days, if I tried my kid's Mac, I couldn't turn the thing on. Um, so, you know, you've got software that looks alike for speaking about the steps and recovery and the disease of addiction, and you've got a parallel set of software talking about anxiety disorders, depression, pain management, and, you know, all of that goes on a slightly different language system that parallels a lot of the, uh, what's in the 12 steps. Um, Okay. Uh, It's time to go for our next break, and when we come back, um, we'll be talking to Dr. Boriskin about um, something that uh, he's got a lot of experience with, and that's hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder. Um, So join us when we come back, and we'll be talking about this uh, newly recognized syndrome. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Ranisi's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody, to one hour at a time. Um, if you have any questions for Dr. Boriskin, please don't hesitate to call. We'd love to talk to you. Um, I'd like to talk to have you talk to us a little bit about hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder. Um, mm-hmm. That was something I hadn't known until I read your book, so right. uh, I'd like to know more about that. Sure. Well, the reason that was mentioned in the book is that it's considered a rare phenomenon statistically. But we're seeing more of it, and I think we will see more of it overall in treatment facilities, and it's something that's overlooked. And let me explain what it is. It's got a very complicated-sounding name, but any listeners or any 
people in the professions who, who know addictive disorders will know it by its simpler name, and that is um, acid flashbacks. Um, and really, it's what HPPT is about. It's hallucinogen persistent perceptual disorder. What happens is with the chronic ingestion of hallucinogens, very often, well, now in specifically ecstasy, MDMA, which is very often associated with sexual boundary violation, we get a lot of young people who have been violated while they have been taking hallucinogens. And so you've got a, a double problem. You've got the power of the hallucinogen, and you also get physical violation and all kinds of somatosensory things going off at the same time. And a number of young people, uh, after they stop taking hallucinogens, have what is called HPPD. In other words, they, they still see residuals of the hallucinatory experience, even though they're not hallucinating fully. And that happens when they are, uh, what is the acronym, HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Uh, if you have a fever, if you're hungry, sleep-deprived, um, the likelihood of having those visual anomalies, and those of you who have done, you know, acid know what I'm talking about in terms of those, those, those little flashes, you know, that that occur, uh, you know, out of the sides of your, you know, peripheral vision. That's that's kind of normal, and that, that kind of comes back for some people. Now, most people don't get that, but a certain percentage do, and there's no way of predicting who's going to have that and who does not. And Oddly enough, they've actually identified why this happens, and it's a couple of cells in the brain that go off, kind of like their alignment goes off, and it's, it's because of the residual effect of the acid. It doesn't go away easily, yet over time it lessens. The problem with HPPD is that when people have these symptoms, they don't tell anybody about it because they're afraid that they're going crazy. And whether you have an anxiety disorder or an addictive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, almost any co-occurring disorders, one of the classic fears is I'm losing it. And what makes HPPD so frightening is it is an altered experience that kind of lingers even when you've stopped using the chemical. And the reason I mentioned in the book is that a lot of young people are getting this because of the epidemic and the resurgence of hallucinogens as well as its association with having been violated um, during the time of using. So it's something that we need to ask a little bit more about because it's not that mysterious. It is something that does diminish, and there are certain natural techniques that diminish its intrusiveness. Oddly enough, wearing sunglasses is one. Really? Uh, just, yeah, it helps. Wow. it helps. And the funny thing is, you know, if you talk to people in, in my age group in the you know, upper 50s and 60s who did... LSD in the 60s, they'll still tell you every once in a while, I get flashbacks. Um, but it need not become something that is intrusive or frightening. And learning to master these things and make them less mysterious is part of what keeps people sober and less frightened. Um, right. These are annoying symptoms, but they need not be damaging symptoms. And just like so many other residual issues of addiction, trauma, depression, um, there's a, people are very resourceful. And once they are empowered to uh, transcend um, injury, they get better. So even though there may be lingering effects, they need not um, fall apart every time they have an episode of this nature. Uh, and part of the reason I wrote about HPPD is to just educate people and start eliminating the secrecy because we've seen a number of young people relapse because they were afraid to tell anybody that they were having these trails and didn't
didn't know quite what to do to master them. And um, it's it's something that is happening more often because of the ecstasy epidemic and the LSD hallucinogen blends. Um, in, in the book, at would send, you talked about different types of interventions that are effective, and you characterize them as top-down and bottom-up interventions. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about both of those? Well, it's a very simple concept, and, and actually a little bit ironic. I hear um, one of the um, leading political candidates talking about the same things in terms of, of fixing the problems in our country. You know, we've got to deal with them top-down and bottom-up. Um, so it's not a novel idea, but it's something that's really important in looking at individual mental health issues. And because we are so used to finding simple techniques, you know, um, take an antidepressant and everything is better, or, um, you know, go through a certain cognitive behavioral um, course of treatment and everything will resolve, um, again, it takes sometimes a lot more work for the more difficult Disorders and the way to conceptualize that is approaching it from bottom-up um, interventions, which deal with the biological factors, and that includes diet and exercise and sleep patterns and self-maintenance. Things that people with depression, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorders, and addictive disorders are not very good at. They don't take care of themselves very well. And we need to design interventions and structure them to take care of those basic needs. Those are basic, simple biological needs. And from the post-traumatic world, um, essentially learning to relax, breathing techniques, and things of that sort are very, very powerful. Those are bottom-up sorts of interventions. Top-down basically looks at insight and higher cognitive sorts of things, the things that you do in psychotherapy and in recovery groups and work with your sponsor, those are cognitive things, um, but it also includes redefining a spiritual system. Um, and without getting into lengthy dialogues about that in terms of what that means for 12-step recovery, there's, there's an additional part of that when you're dealing with mental illness, and especially post-traumatic issues, you need to enter that dialogue too. So the most effective outcomes that we've seen with complicated patients is when we are working in both directions. We are working from mastering the bottom up and dealing with those simple, you know, mechanical, biological learning aspects of uh, self-care and at the same time having a very intense dialogue about um, the way you think, the way you speak to yourself, whether you deserve to get better, um, and how you're going to find meaning out of your misery. Um, and those are very important questions. And when you approach them from both directions, you get much, much, much better outcome. Because part of what I've seen in my years of working are attempts to apply singular answers to multidimensional problems. And they don't work very well. So the more the more power that we add into it and the more oomph we give from several directions, the, the better, better results we get. Um, the other thing that you suggest in your book in terms of the four dimensions, mm-hmm. um, the biological dimension, the psychological dimension, interpersonal, the spiritual dimension, right. and how um, it's important to have all of those intertwined in, mm-hmm. in uh, the recovery process. Um, those, yeah, really what, what I'm, I'm describing there is a way to weave together and not miss the obvious. Because part of my frustration in working with 
co-occurring disorders for several decades is seeing people take one of those four dimensions and putting all their eggs into one basket. So in other words, mental health professionals will say it's all cognitive, it's self-talk, it's cognitive behavioral things and, and ignore the interpersonal and ignore the biological and ignore the spiritual and therefore their results are not as good. Or conversely, the psychiatric community that says we've got you medicated correctly and that's all you need. Most, most psychiatrists don't do that, but a lot of patients will only seek that one, one angle of approach. And when you've got complicated problems like addictive disorders and like, you know, resistant depressions, anxiety disorders, and post-traumatic phenomena, you need, you need to be firing on all those cylinders. And clinicians who can do that and systems that can deliver all of that get much, much, much better outcomes. So that's why I bother to write about that is to remind families, remind patients to not go down these narrow pathways, but these pathways need to be covering those, those core dimensions. Mm-hmm. One of the other things you talk about is patience and not passivity mm-hmm. and how sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Yeah. Um, for family members who are looking at a process um, of recovery, it does take a lot of patience because it takes a fair amount of time. This is not something that you can, um, you know, wave your magic wand and everything is better. Um, and, and sometimes families confuse passivity and patience. They, they will be incredibly patient while the person is acting out and being self-destructive, get into that whole codependency enabling sort of thing, and they will not say a word. Yet when, when a person starts entering into recovery, they, the family members suddenly become impatient and angry about all the stuff that had been done before. And it's a hard balance. It's hard on everybody. And it's, it's very important for families going through this to keep their mindfulness and their balance and not let their procrastination slow down a person getting help and at the same time not let their anger get in the way of the difficult process of getting sober and regaining one's clarity of vision, whether we're dealing with depression or any of the other uh, disorders that we cover in the book. And how important it is for family members to also engage in their own self-care, that they Absolutely. cannot just be so focused on the um, individual becoming you know, well that they totally lose themselves in the process. Exactly, exactly. And learning to communicate you know, in a balanced, constructive way rather than letting anger or fear get in the way because family members, it's interesting, um, family members are quite vulnerable to developing symptoms that we would describe as secondary post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. or even akin to primary post-traumatic stress disorder. Just as a, an interesting irony, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for like 30 years. You know, we found each other from Google, which is kind of a common thing these days. And um, he is a three-tour combat um, army ranger whose daughter went through psychological problems, not addiction problems. And he said that was harder for him than his military service. Because? Because of his helplessness. Because of the helplessness. Yes. Right. Um, We'll be back for our remaining uh, segment with Dr. Borskin, and we'll be talking a little bit about pain management and um, the Advanced Recovery Center. We'll be right back. 
A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. Um, before we went to break, Dr. Borskin was talking about the secondary effects of family members experienced from trauma and addiction. You were talking about a friend that you had just connected with. Right. Yeah, and he said to me, uh, and I've got his note from uh, an email, he said, while in Vietnam, I knew when my terror would end when the mission was over, but with my daughter, I did not have that luxury. Um, so basically, you know, he was saying that this was tougher in many respects than um, his, his military service, which is pretty impressive because he had been a multi-tour, uh, high-intensity veteran. Um, so this is difficult stuff for family members because they're dealing with uncertainty and not knowing whether their loved one will get well or not. Uh, and it's a very difficult learning curve, and there's just a lot of unknowns. And most importantly, you feel powerless, which is why getting support and going to codependency meetings and getting appropriate levels of therapy for family members is so, so important. Uh, staying healthy is important to help your loved ones. I think another important aspect for family members as well as for individuals is um, oftentimes people with trauma, they, they may have physical pain, they may be more prone to accidents, they may end up in emergency rooms more often. People with addiction certainly end up in emergency rooms a lot. And this whole... Um, pain management, this whole new field of pain management, it seems to me like 
um, this is just my own opinion, not anyone else's, is that uh, people are really are prescribing uh, painkillers uh, just without any rhyme or reason, you know. Um, and, and I think that this, there needs to be some type of controls over physicians and nurse practitioners who are prescribing these medications because most of the people in New England who are in methadone clinics aren't there for heroin addiction. They're there for opiate diversion and overprescription. Yeah, you raise a very interesting political hot button, third rail, if you will, in terms of the dynamics in medicine and treating pain and whether we undertreat it or overtreat it. Uh, and if you talk to certain physicians, the fear of creating an addiction has deprived people with chronic illnesses and intractable pain of necessary levels of pain management. And you talk to addiction professionals like ourselves, you'll say you're creating so many monsters by overprescribing medicines. So it's it's truly a collision of good intent on both sides, but what we've seen in recent years is an epidemic of um, prescription um, pain-killing um, medicines being overused, misused, um, snorted, resulting in overdose and deaths. So it's a growing problem. Um, and actually, I, I can remember a few years back when um, the uh, medical associations essentially said you would be considered negligent in a hospital setting if you let somebody with chronic pain um, not be properly medicated going away from an emergency room. You know, and, and my wife had some mysterious foot problem, and we were kind of scratching our heads when um, they gave her Percocets, and she never asked for it. So you're right about a general trend, but it was derived out of this desire to medicate people with intractable pain, which is where we get into the whole oxycontin, oxycodone, you know, um, problem area. Um, and I'm I'm sensitive to both sides of this issue because I respect that there are people who have accidents, who have illnesses that do need heavy pain medications with proper balance, but those are relative minority members. Uh, there are a lot more people who become dependent upon this and who are medication-seeking and exaggerate um, perceived pain, which is very hard to document and differentiate. Talk to a pain management expert. It, it's, it's difficult stuff. So we run the risk of errors in both directions, and finding that right pathway can be challenging. And a new area that's developing is... Um, um, addiction-free pain management, in other words, keeping away from addiction-related medicines and learning to manage pain through as many natural techniques and non-addictive um, methods available. That's kind of a growing edge of our field, and I think a lot of people who do have either real or perceived pain, that's kind of the general direction I would hope for them to go. You're right, in some areas of the country, pain clinics opened up with the same frequency as years ago diet clinics, where pain right. medicines were were dispensed like, you know, Pez candy, and that has created um, horrible, horrible consequences. So, you know, this, you raised this, and we've dealt with it in our chapters on, you know, pain management. This is tough stuff, um, and we're not denying that there's real chronic pain, but and we're also not denying that there is really over-prescription over of potent medicines. Right, and I, and I think what's important for individuals and families to know is that 
Um, if you have an addiction, if you have a dual disorder, understand what the medication is that you're taking and just don't go because the doctor prescribed it, it's going to be okay. Because oftentimes doctors don't realize what you're going through or they may not have a good understanding of what addiction is either. Or uh, in case in point, we had a doctor say to one of our um, participants, and are you okay taking this stuff? I know you have an addiction. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm okay with it. You know, of course he was. <laughs> you know, it was like he just, it was like Christmas and New Year's all rolled into one. So, um, you know, I think it's important that, that uh, people learn to advocate for themselves as well and, and realize that just because somebody gives it to you doesn't mean that necessarily... That's the right. You're absolutely right. And my general philosophy, I've kind of gone personally myself all over the map in terms of medications for managing depression as well as pain, um, you know, and, and I've kind of reached the my own mindset that less is better in all right. domains for every kind of man. And I'm, I'm a cancer survivor. I've been through pain. I know what that's like. Um, and I, my wife has chronic pain, and we've both come to the conclusion, not to sound like, you know, born-again, you know, new-age types, but the less you put in your body that is chemical, the better off you're going to be. Right. Maybe that's a good segue into uh, the Advanced Recovery Center and, and what kind of treatment. It's um, it's an extended care facility, so maybe you could talk a little bit about what sure. you do there. Okay. Um, Advanced Recovery Center was started to meet a gap in the uh, continuum of care. We had a lot of people who went to primary addiction treatment facilities or um, psychiatric facilities and didn't have the to go back home or um, could not sustain um, themselves in terms of early recovery. And part of my motivation in starting the program years ago was um, watching people in primary who kept going back for primary treatment that had undiagnosed, untreated, unrecognized post-traumatic stress disorder. So our specialty is in PTSD and addictive disorders, but we deal with mood disorders and depressive disorders. And the model is based on transitional treatment. It's like, how do you get a person from that um, isolated campus-like living and safety um, of primary treatment, which is wonderful. It's, it's, it's a great feeling of going into primary. But then coming home is a huge transition, especially if you're going back to uh, difficult circumstances and temptations and cues that make you uncomfortable or um, are too familiar for relapse patterns, sometimes a geographic shift is necessary. So we get patients from all over the country, actually all over the world, um, who've had primary treatments but have not been able to hold it together or, have, or are currently in primary and are at high risk for relapsing. So we have a 90-day minimum program and many patients stay six months to a year, where they live in um, a residential setting that is normal and is very structured uh, to imitate what they get in primary, yet they're maintaining um, apartments, cooking for themselves, cleaning for themselves, and have a very structured daily group and individual therapeutic activity and go to meetings every day and work with a sponsor and work with the psychiatrist and the psychologist and specific trauma track, and we're just um, developing and augmenting um, an eating disorders track. So we are working with those co-occurring disorders to really provide that integrated flow, pull it together, and give enough momentum so that people have a higher chance of um, holding it together when, when they're 
living independently. Because it's hard work to get sober, and it's hard work when you've got um, multiple issues. Yes, it's, it's extremely hard work, and for um, individuals and families who are who are experiencing um, co-occurring disorders, PTSD, anxiety disorders, depression, and substance use disorders. Um, I hope you all know that there are there are very good and ethical treatment centers out there, and um, you can check our website www.westbridge.org, or you can um, I'm sure you can check Dr. Borskin's website, Advanced Recovery Center, to learn more about co-occurring disorders. Thank you, Dr. Borskin. It's been a great hour for sharing all of your knowledge with us. Thank you very much. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.